Today's scripture reading is John 3:22 through 30. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ. But I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Alicia. Well, is... um. As you, might, as you might guess, I'm a, I'm a pastor, uh, it's a good guess, uh, and uh, part of my job is to perform weddings, and I, I, I genuinely love performing weddings. They are a great joy. I've had the joy of getting to declare some of you husband and wife, which is a great honor, and, um, and I've, I've been to several weddings, and I've got some great stories, which I will save for another time. I will change the names to protect the innocent, but, um, but there are these moments where you're at the wedding, and you realize there's a lot of important people. But there's one person at a wedding that's like of unique importance, right? There's one person above all that should have most of the attention, and that's the pastor. You know, it's just, no, just kidding, just kidding. It's the bride. Of course it's the bride. You know, the attention is on the bride, and rightly so. But I'm sure we have been to weddings, or we have been a part of weddings, where some kind of rowdy groomsman or some embittered bridesmaid does something to upstage the bride or the groom, and you just feel terrible, like, oh, this is their day, why are you taking attention from them? And as I was thinking about our passage together in John 3, John, the Baptist, he employs this wedding marriage imagery, and I could not help but think of probably the most uncomfortable episode in the show The Office that still is cringeworthy to me to this day. And so to invite you into my pain, uh, go ahead and take a look at this clip. Oh my goodness gracious. Okay, so if you weren't laughing during that, clearly you have not seen The Office, but, but like, what, if you did not hear what Michael Scott said, the employer of the bride, the audacity that he has to claim that me walking Phyllis down the aisle was supposed to be the highlight, and now the wedding has no highlight. I mean, you, we laugh at it because it's so absurd, and, and the reason I share this, this clip is because it is such a stark contrast to the posture and the, the perspective that John the Baptist has of his relationship to Jesus. I mean, when you understand who John is, the brother's entire life is existing. He exists to point to Jesus, make much of Jesus, prepare the way for Jesus. I mean, can you imagine John saying, I was supposed to be the highlight, and now the kingdom of God has no highlight? Can you imagine John saying that, how things would go? John is like, no, that is not my posture. That is not my perspective. And John is showing us what it means for us to have a proper view of Jesus. John is, in many ways, the ideal witness of what it means as he declares that he must increase, referring to Jesus, and that I must decrease. 
But as we consider our own lives, before we kind of like, like laugh this off, as we consider our own lives, as followers of Jesus in particular, do we follow Jesus in such a way that our life is marked more by the powerful words of John, he must increase and I must decrease, or are, are, are our lives marked more by the words of Michael Scott, I was supposed to be the highlight, I was supposed to have the attention. And even if you're not a follower of Jesus, first of all, I'm glad you're here. I would love to get to know you, journey with you, but, but we should all ask ourselves this question, whether you're a Christian or not, to whom is my life pointing? Each and every one of us, we live our lives, we conduct our days, we order our loves and values in such a way that it points to someone or something, and more often than not, that someone is ourselves. We live our lives in such a way that it points towards us. But here's the thing, we were never designed or destined to, to be people who, who could carry the weight of living for ourselves. We know that. We know that when we live for our own pleasures and pursuits and ambitions, that it's hollow and empty because we were never meant to carry the weight of living for ourselves. On the contrary, our well-being, our flourishing, our very salvation is wrapped up and tied to our ability and our willingness to live for and delight in something greater than ourselves, or more accurately, to live for someone greater than ourselves. And that is what John is pointing us to in these timeless words. And so, so this is the text we're going to be looking at. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to chapter 3 of the Gospel of John. And I want us to be asking this question, to whom is my life pointing? To whom is my life pointing? And what I want to offer and what I want to declare, spoiler alert, is that it must be Jesus. Because what John is driving home for us is this. Very simply, this is our idea, Jesus must be greater. Jesus must be greater. So again, turn to John chapter 3. Whether you have a print Bible, electronic Bible, whether you have the whole thing memorized, turn to John chapter 3. And, and if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. We have English, Spanish Bibles available at the welcome table. But uh, jump in with me at verse 22, chapter 3. We read these words, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them, his, his disciples, uh, and was baptizing. So at this time, Jesus' ministry has increased. His, his fame is growing. People are talking about Jesus, like he's getting more followers on Twitter. Like Jesus' name is becoming more ubiquitous. It's a household name. His, his followers are growing, and in fact, they're, dis, they're baptizing many people whom John was baptizing. They're coming from John's crew. And, and John is thrilled about this, but his followers are less than enthusiastic that Jesus, this new guy on the scene, and his followers are kind of stealing the business from John. And we see this in verse 26, what John's disciples say to John. We read these words in verse 26, and they came to John, John's disciples, and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you, referring to Jesus, across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. So, so here we see, to be clear, uh, they're, point, they're, they're not celebrating this. It's not like, huzzah, Jesus is finally getting the attention he deserves. Let the heavens rejoice. Like he, they are not enthusiastic about Jesus getting all this attention. They are complaining. They are operating out of this idea that the, the economy of the kingdom of God is a zero-sum game, and that the more Jesus gets, the less they get. And John is like, he's like that's kind of the point, y'all. You're missing it. And so they're complaining about Jesus growing. And, and you see their bitterness 
come out in their kind of childish universal language, you know, when, when we use the words all and never, that's usually when we are acting a little bit more maturely. Like, you always do this. You never let me, like, we do that not as just children, as adults too. You always do it. You know that you do. That was a joke. But what we say, because they, what, what do they say, they say? They say, all are going to him. Now, it's not quite literally true that all are going to him, but you see this childish behavior in John's disciples. Now, before we continue to kind of ridicule them for their attitude and their postures, we should kind of ask ourselves, like, does this dynamic, does this phenomenon make itself present in our lives? This kind of jealousy, this kind of bitterness, this resentment over others who have it better. Somebody once said that envy is being bitter because others have it better. And that's kind of what's going on with John's disciples. And so as followers of Jesus, I think we can get caught up in this kind of zero-sum game of, but if they get more, that means less for us. And I think we play this game even when it comes to like our own theological tribe, when it comes to our own ministry initiatives, when it comes to our own church or our own campus, we want to have the recognition over and against others. And it keeps us from rejoicing genuinely when God does something amazing through somebody else. And, and I think this is a real struggle that I know that I have, but if we're honest, I think it resonates with a lot of us. That if we can't rejoice, then we are failing to understand the posture that John is giving us, that Jesus must be greater. It's not Christ's community must be greater. It's not the Olathe campus must be greater or, or our denomination or our theological tribe. It is Jesus must be greater, full stop. And if somebody else or some other church or some other leader is able to make Jesus greater, we should rejoice in that. I remember early on in ministry, somebody asking me this question, and it has never left me. And the question was essentially this, could you rejoice and be thankful to God for the work someone else did that you hoped to accomplish, but they ended up doing it better? And as I reflected on that, I was just like, I, I mean, I think, I mean, the obvious Sunday school answer should be yes. Like, I should be able to rejoice that somebody else has accomplished what I wanted to do and did it better for the glory of Christ and the goodness of the kingdom. But if I'm really honest, my gut reaction in those times is probably no, I I want the credit. I want the glory. And, and just to be, I'll be very honest, like for example, some of you know we're collaborating across our campuses to help uh, in the resettling process of many Afghan refugees who are coming to the States, coming to Kansas City, and it's been an exciting thing. And so if you haven't heard about that, I encourage you to check out our website, uh, ccksc.church cares, uh, to learn more, to, to join us, to be a part of this work, to show radical hospitality and love to our neighbors in need. But... I bring this up because recently I heard about another area church who is doing the same work, but on a much larger scale and with greater intentionality and more resources, and my knee-jerk reaction was disappointment. I was disappointed because I, I want my church and, and us and my name to be attached to this work. Instead, what I'm seeing is that rather than being driven by a genuine love for our neighbors and the glory of Jesus... My knee-jerk reaction revealed that I'm more interested in self-image and recognition than I am the glory of Christ. But if we are to adopt this posture that John shows us so beautifully, that he must increase, I must decrease, we should be able to rejoice when we see Jesus made greater and better in the minds and hearts of all people because, again, it is Jesus who must be greater, not simply Christ's community 
not the Olathe campus, not any other person. Jesus must be greater. This actually got me thinking about um, Patrick Mahomes, okay? I think enough time has elapsed since the AFC lost, the uh, championship lost, that we can talk about football illustrations again, maybe. I'm not sure. Too soon. But there, this is a common image. You see, like, when, when Mahomes, uh, when, when a player uh, has a successful play, you see him celebrating with his teammates, I mean, in quite literally lifting them up. Like, one of my favorite things is to see is when he picks up little tiny baby Mikkel Hardman, and it's just a wonderful celebration, quite literally lifting up his other players, Genuinely, it's one of my favorite things to see in sports when a, when a player who has all of this attention, all of this glory, all of this money, and they genuinely celebrate at the successes of their teammates, even if they don't have a good game. They're genuinely celebrating in the goodness and the victories of others because it's not about them. Similarly, this got me thinking about uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. Uh, Zelensky is the, the president of, the Ukra- of, of Ukraine. And, and I, you maybe saw this picture. So that is the president of Ukraine. And this picture went viral. It was attached, uh, a quote was attached to it. Um, in 2019, in his inaugural address, uh, Zelensky said these words to Ukrainian lawmakers. He said this, I do not want my picture in your offices. The president is not an icon, an idol, or a portrait. Hang your kids' photos instead and look at them each time you are making a decision. Isn't that wildly inspiring? I mean, when you think about this leader, the kind of power he has, and his, his whole point is to point attention to your families and not himself. The spotlight is not on him. The credit is not something he is pursuing. He does not want to be praised. And this is, in, in small part, what I believe John the Baptist is getting at when he declares to his disciples that Jesus must increase and he must decrease. It's what John says when, when he responds to his, despi- his despondent disciples as they're kind of complaining about Jesus getting more attention. And so here's what I want us to think about. Where you find yourself this time tomorrow, wh- whether that's in a place of work, school, your, your home, your community, wherever God has called you and placed you, I want you to think about your Monday world through this lens and ask yourself this question. Are you able to celebrate the wins, the victories, the successes, the accomplishments of your colleagues, of your peers? your classmates, your neighbors, even your competitors. Now I'm, now I'm meddling here. But, but truly, like, or, or do, you, do you simply see those around you as threats to your own success? And I understand, I mean, hear me, I understand that there's a healthy level of competition when it comes to school or sports and work and business. I get that. But does this kind of healthy competition end up keeping us from rejoicing in the greater good? The greater bottom lines of people being served, of meaningful services being rendered, of of helpful products being produced, of communities being impacted for the common good, or are we just focused on our personal bottom lines? And so to put it another way, can you thank God for the good work done by others that brings about the flourishing of others? Or do you find yourself, like John's disciples, responding with the sins of jealousy, of rivalry, of of envy, of selfish ambition and bitterness. And friends, hear me say very lovingly, when we allow those things to take root in our heart, they will consume us, they, they will destroy us, they will corrupt us, they will corrode us if we allow them to take us over. And we need to be very mindful of how we posture ourselves towards others. In fact, listen to how the New Testament writer James puts it in James chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. 
James says this, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. A strong language coming from James. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Jealousy and selfish ambition ought not to be among those who follow Jesus, who pledge their full allegiance to him and to his kingdom. When we understand who Jesus is and when we understand that he must be greater and that joy comes from that, it becomes easier for us to reject things like selfish ambition because Jesus must be better. So, so, go, so going back to our text in John chapter 3, look with me at verses 27 and 28 to see how John responds to his disciples. John 3, verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So John's disciples are basically saying, why should Jesus get all the attention? This is not fair. We've been with you. We've worked hard. We've left friends and family to be with you, and now he's getting all the attention. And to his credit, John exercises incredible patience here because the brother is known for kind of like flying off the handle, saying harsh things. I mean, it's eventually kind of what gets him in trouble later on, uh, not to spoil the, the story. But John exercises great restraint in what he says to his disciples. He simply tells them, look, you, you, can, either, you can either trust God and his good will for your life that is infinitely perfect, or you can grow arrogant and resentful. Or or to put it a little bit more distilled way, you can either grow bitter or you can admit that Jesus must be better. Take your pick. Those those are your options. You can either grow bitter or you can see that Jesus must be better, must be greater. He must increase. And, And John isn't saying this. I want to be really clear. John isn't saying this from this like rigid religiosity perspective. He's not like, hey, accept the fact that God wants a miserable life for you. Like that's not what he's saying. He's like, on the contrary, John is saying that the the sooner we get to a place where we can say honestly and with sincerity, he must increase, but I must decrease, that is where joy complete is found. That's where John goes. He's not giving just, he's not spouting off some religious statement or as Dr. King says, uh, sanctimonious trivialities. Like John is saying something true about the human condition. When we decrease and Jesus increases, joy is found complete. Look what he says in verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, he's referring to himself here, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And so here we see this wedding imagery on full display as John is equating himself to basically being the best man of a wedding. And what is the role of a best man? The best man is meant to point to, to support, to celebrate, to rejoice in the bride and the groom. That's the beautiful irony of the title, best man. The best man is precisely the best man because he realizes he isn't the best man. You see what I'm saying? Like that, that's, that's what John is recognizing. That's why Jesus even later refers to John as the greatest prophet. There's no one greater born of woman than John the Baptist because he was able to declare that Jesus must be greater. John is so far from being Michael Scott, 
in this moment. He's so far from bringing the attention to himself. He is so far from being the highlight of his story. Instead, the joyful highlight for John is found in highlighting Jesus. Because for John, Jesus must be greater. And that is precisely what makes John's joy complete. I mean, I want us to see the stark contrast between the selfish ambition of John's disciples, their bitterness, their desire to have all of the attention and glory, and contrast that with John, who very humbly says, I must decrease so that he must increase, and joy being found complete in that. John's joy increases to the point of completion as he lives more fully into the beauty that Jesus must be better. And it is in this unsurpassing, unfathomable, unrivaled beauty and glory of Jesus that compels John to declare these words very powerfully and humbly, which really are the focal point of this whole pericope, this whole whole story in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Both together. It is not just Jesus must be glorified. That's absolutely true. But there is a necessity, a need for us to have a proper, humble view of ourselves. And family, this is, this is everything. This is, this is what I want us to hear from John's words. John is giving us a rather severe mercy in these words. He's warning us, lovingly so, that the path of seeking our own satisfaction, pursuing our own pleasures, consumed with our own cares, driven by our own desires, and aiming for our own ambitions, it only leads to our downfall, to our despair, and ultimately our death. John is being really clear here that that he's not just saying he must increase because he's worthy, that is true, but he is saying he must increase, otherwise we will fall into despair and death. And while that is harsh news to hear, the very good news, the converse of that statement is that joy complete, sin forgiven, and life eternal is found when we take the focus off of ourselves and place it rightfully, fully, and solely upon Jesus who must be greater. Amen? That's what John is driving at. He is not just giving some religious platitude. He is telling us that Jesus must be greater because he is. And if that is true, If what John is declaring is true, that joy complete is found in decreasing ourselves so that Jesus might increase, then that ought to lead us to respond. That ought to produce in us some kind of reorientation of our loves, of our values, of our trajectory of life. And so to that end, let me, I want to just briefly offer um, a, a way for us to respond in light of what John has declared is very wisely but boldly in these words, that he must increase and I must decrease. And so let me suggest this to us. We need to decrease comparing and complaining and increase delighting and declaring. We need to decrease comparing and complaining and increase delighting and declaring. Let me explain what I mean by that. And again, I'm going to be, I'm going to be honest here. Most, when I reflect on the moments in my life when I'm the most depressed or feeling ashamed of some kind, it's most often tied to me comparing myself to those who are just slightly above me in some way, shape, or form. You know, we, we, we don't compare ourselves to people who are like, like, I'm not comparing myself to like Jeff Bezos and LeBron James, you know, like these are not people I am in competition with, okay? I compare myself to the person who is just slightly more talented than me, who's just slightly more uh, in better shape than me, 
who's slightly funnier than me, oh, that one, that one's hard for me to deal with, who, who makes slightly more money than me, who goes on slightly better vacations than me, these are the people that we are in competition with. These are the people that produce within us selfish ambition and rivalry. In her outstanding book, Glittering Vices, uh, Rebecca DeYoung uh, hits the nail on the head with these words. Listen to this. It's not just that the other person is better. It's that by comparison, their superiority makes you feel your own lack, your own inferiority, and more acutely, and you feel it more acutely. If we reflect on whom we envy, we are likely to discover how we define our own identity and where we see that identity as most vulnerable. This is where we have to be on guard against the pernicious sins of of comparison and complaining. And they flow out of a heart that is not focused on Jesus, that is not believing functionally that Jesus must be greater. And if we allow selfish ambition, envy, comparison, complaining into our lives, it will ruin us. It will ruin our relationships. And so we must be on guard. That's why John is giving this this stern word to his disciples. Be on guard that you not focus on yourself. You must focus on Jesus being greater. And so the best way, in my opinion, the best way to conquer the sins of complaining and comparing is to increase delighting and declaring. The only true and lasting way to wage war against the sins of comparison and complaining is to delight and to declare the truth and the beauty that Jesus is greater. The road sign on the path of repentance is not a stop sign. It is a U-turn. We are not simply called to just cease sinning. That's true. But part of what we are invited into in the life of following Jesus is ceasing from sin so that we might seek the joys found in Jesus who is greater. And I I firmly believe this, church, that I believe so much of our despair, our discontent in life, our disdain for others, it flows from, it stems from a failure to delight in and to declare to ourselves and to others the better joys found in Jesus. This is why I think the habits of encountering Jesus through, through the scriptures, through prayer together, through service of one another, through evangelism, through gathering in regular corporate worship, not out of a sense of obligation. We practice these habits not so that we can prove that we are good Christians, but because these things cultivate in us a capacity to delight in Jesus all the more. I don't read my Bible in order to impress God. I I read my Bible, I engage in prayer, I share the the good news with others, because in so doing, I believe there is a joy to be found in seeing Jesus increase as I decrease. The the reason we find ourselves so cold from the, the hollow offerings of selfish ambition and vain pleasure is because we have not warmed ourselves by the fire of worshiping Jesus as the source of all joy in life that he is the one who is greater, that in him is found joy complete. And so friends, do you want to make your joy complete? Do you want to find joy fulfilled? Do you long for your life to count for something? Do you sense an urge within your soul to live for something greater than yourself? Do you feel the hollowness of the sins of selfish ambition, of comparison and complaining? Then take a play out of John's playbook and believe that Jesus must be greater. Find your joy completed 
by seeing Jesus as the one who must increase as we decrease. Because again, when John proclaimed he must increase and I must decrease, he's not speaking from a place of religious duty as though he was obligated to do so. But rather, when John says that Jesus must increase, he is saying so because Jesus is unquestionably better than everything. And John backs this up in what he says following in verse 31. Listen to this. So after all this, after this, this operative phrase, he must increase, but I must decrease, John gives the firm and affirmative why. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way, but he who comes from heaven is above all. Jesus must be better because, frankly, he is. He is above all. There is none greater than Jesus. There is no greater joy to be found. There is no greater love to receive. There is no greater glory to behold. There is no greater name by which we can be saved than the sweet, salvific name of Jesus. Amen. When we believe that truth and live into it, we find a joy made complete, not out of religious duty, but in seeing beholding Jesus. As the beautiful hymn writer declares, oh man, you're going to love this. The name of Jesus is so sweet. I love its music to repeat. It makes my joys full and complete, the precious name of Jesus. I love the name of him whose heart knows all my griefs and bears a part, who bids all anxious fears depart. I love the name of Jesus. There is no greater, no sweeter, no powerful name than the name of Jesus. And that is why he must increase. And that is why we must decrease. For it is here where we see this strange and beautiful gospel irony that as we decrease, our joy increases in delighting in the one who must be greater. Amen. And so this is so true for us. Because as I began, we were never designed or destined to bear the weight of living for ourselves, of, having, of, of being the highlight of our own stories. We were designed to be mirrors of reflection, pointing back to the one who has called us and created us. And we find ourselves short-circuiting our own joy when we seek to live for ourselves. But our joy is found complete when we seek it in making much of Jesus, the one who must be greater. So family, to whom is your life pointing? And my word to you, my urge to you, my loving declaration to you and to me is that it must be Jesus because Jesus must be greater. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that by your grace you have allowed me as a broken sinner to, to be able to declare the beautiful truth that Jesus must increase, that we must decrease. Lord, I thank you for the gift of, of receiving this word together with my brothers and sisters. I pray, Lord, that you would remove any vanity, selfish ambition, rivalry, comparison, complaining within us. Guard us from it, Lord, so that we might be prevented from corruption, consumption, and decay. Lord, I ask that you would grant us the ability to see and to behold Jesus as above all things, as the one who gave his life for us, as the one who came from heaven, as the one who from heaven has come to cure every ailment that plagues us. And so, Lord, I ask in this time that you would break through the hollow idols that we have built up and lived for. Lord, would you show us the emptiness of what we have pursued, and may we find you as greater, and may our joy be complete in making much of Jesus the one whose life, death, and resurrection is our only hope in life and in death. And so, Lord, I pray declaratively 
that we as your people, by the power of your spirit, would decrease so that the Lord Jesus might increase and that our joy may be found complete. It is in the name of Christ and for his glory we pray. Amen.